You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 74. Today we are asking the question, is a capacity index a good replacement for incident count safety metrics? Let's get started. everybody. My name's Drew Ray. I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University, coming to you from Brisbane and Melbourne. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and examine the evidence surrounding it. In this episode, I don't think we've really got a question. We just have a paper that we're keen to talk about. So I'll throw it straight to you, David. Yeah, Drew, thanks. Let's start by introducing the paper straight off the that. Normally we have a bit of a general overview, but the paper that we're going to review today is a recent paper by Professor Sidney Decker and Michael Toomer. And the paper's called A Capacity Index to Replace Flawed Incident-Based Metrics for Worker Safety. It's very recent. Uh, it's only just been published online, maybe only in the last couple of weeks. And so we usually start by talking about the authors. And I think, at least I suspect that for most of our listeners, uh, Professor Sidney Decker doesn't need too much of an introduction. He's been behind a lot of the new view safety theories, particularly safety differently and resilience engineering for more than two decades. And Michael Toomer is a very well credentialed and influential Australian-based OHS lawyer that works um, as part of a legal firm, Clyde & Co. And so when it comes to matters of safety science and when it comes to matters of safety law, then the authors are very well credentialed to talk about that. Um, but today we're just talking about this paper. And so the paper was published, Drew, in the International Labor Review. I hadn't come across this journal before, maybe somewhat embarrassingly. Um, it's actually a peer-reviewed multidisciplinary journal of the International Labor Organization. It's actually managed and administered by the ILO Research Department. 2021 is its 100th year anniversary, so it was established in 1921, and it's published every quarter in English, French, and Spanish uh, and the topics that the journal covers are all of those matters related to work. So uh, law, industrial relations, uh, management science, economics, and health and safety. Interesting journal choice, but I did speak with Sydney when before this paper was submitted, and it was designed to be a paper that contributed to the policy debate and really took the, the flawed issue of incident metrics to every corner of the world. Um, and particularly back into developing countries as well. So Drew, we've talked about incident measuring safety performance a couple of times on the podcast. So episode 35, we talked about leading and lagging indicators. And in episode 55, we also discussed uh, the white paper out of the US, particularly on the statistical invalidity of TRIFR. So Drew, I think at least my recollection, if it's, if it's true or not, but I suspect in both of those previous episodes when we've talked about incident metrics, uh, I suspect we've both been critical of the use of incident count measures as an indicator of the level of safety management or the level of, I suppose, capacity to make work go well within an organisation. Yes, and one of the dangers of being critical of incident counts is that people immediately ask you what you should use instead. And not surprisingly, this is a question that often gets thrown at people who are presenting new ideas in safety, is what would they give to replace current metrics? David, I think I've been fairly clear with my own position, which is that I don't really like the use of metrics. If we can't have good metrics, I'd rather have none at all. But that's not an answer that flies with a lot of businesses. They feel a need to have businesses. 
And one of the interesting things they point out in this paper is that there may be a belief that businesses are required to have metrics in order to demonstrate that they are appropriately managing safety. And there have certainly been hints of that coming out of the couple of recent mining things in Queensland. This sign that actually collecting appropriate metrics may be an active obligation on organisations for safety. Um, and I would certainly believe someone like Michael when he say, if he says you know, that businesses ha use lagging indicators because they think it's a legal requirement, then he, that's probably his direct experience. So anyway, the paper's just come out. We're, we're already getting questions on LinkedIn in various places. Uh, what do we think about it? So we thought we'd do a podcast just sort of directly reading it, reviewing it and giving our own opinions. Yeah, Drew, thanks. And so Ben Hutchinson did a review of this um, and does a lot of good reviews uh, on LinkedIn and his own blog, blog of the safety science literature. And I think it was Katrina Gray who asked us to, to podcast about this. So to pay back, Katrina, you'll have to come and present your um, research on, on the podcast in the not too distant future. But Drew, section one of this paper, I suppose, rehashes very old ground about the problems with lost time injury reporting. Um, but it puts a bit of a slant on it from a governance and due diligence perspective. So between Michael and Sydney, like this, there's a heavy flavour throughout this paper of uh, not just thinking about the safety of the work, but thinking of the way that officers and managers within organisations also demonstrate the discharging of their obligations. So there's these inter intertwined drivers for the work in this paper. So do you want to just sort of go back through and highlight sort of how the paper talks about the problems with, with injury counts as performance measures? Sure. Let's go through the list. Um, as you said, David, I, I quite like the spin that they've put on this. Normally, criticisms about lost time indicators start with how they get skewed or how they lack statistical validity. And the arguments here are based more around the fact that they're not fit for purpose if you are on a board or you are in senior management of an organisation trying to achieve due diligence. So I'll just sort of read out the list. The first one is that lost time indicators are unsuitable for comparisons. You can't use them to compare one business to another or one industry from another because everyone has different base rates, different denominators under the injury counts, and everyone uses def different definitions of what counts as an injury of different types. So you create these numbers, you put, publish them in your annual report, but you can't pick up two annual reports, see different numbers, and decide that one company is safer than another company, which kind of absolutely defeats the purpose of a number if you can't compare two numbers and even decide whether one's bigger than another. And the second they say is that it's unsuitable for trends. So you can't use them to decide if you're getting more dangerous or getting uh, more safe because of the low statistical power that they have. And because of that low statistical power, you also can't link any variation to any sort of management action. So it's inappropriate to reward managers for a number that goes up and down due to random noise instead of goes up and down depending on the performance of the manager. They're unsuitable for insights into what's going on because lost time injuries really track the loss of productivity, not the causes of those losses. And we've got much better measures of productivity, you're measuring productivity and income directly. And for safety, what we really want is to track something that is separate from productivity, which lost time indicators don't. There's another couple that sort of clearly come in through Tumor's work. So the next one I think is really quite interesting, which is that low injury rates don't tell you whether you're actually meeting your legal safety obligations. They're two totally separate things. Now, I don't know about you, David, but it never occurred to me that you would believe that. But I could understand how if you don't sort of like think about it clearly, you might think, well, this is my defence. We must be safe because we've got a low injury rate. When really you should be proving you're safe because you're meeting the requirement. 
I think there was a general, I suppose, idea in industry, and, and maybe it still is. Uh, I'm, I'm not that well connected to it, but for a while that um, if you don't have an incident, you don't have a legal problem because the core obligations in legislation is to manage hazards uh, to prevent incidents. So so clearly, other than the administrative requirements, I know that there has been for a long time a mantra in, in some industries, which is if you don't have the incidents, then you can't possibly have any legal problem, legal compliance issues or problems because the, the regulator is only going to take interest in an organisation that has an incident. So Tuma actually points out some, he cites directly to some court cases here. Um, David, I don't know if you looked up any of the cases. I have to admit that I haven't, but he cited them in support of the fact that low injury rates are not a defence if an incident happens. So I presume people have actually tried to run that argument in court to say, yes, we had an incident, but look, our overall rates are low, so we must be, you know, we're not guilty of being unsafe. We just had bad luck. And that argument doesn't fly because the court doesn't care about the low injury rates. They care about this specific incident and whether you were doing enough to prevent this specific incident. And then the final one is just fairly obvious that injury rates aren't predictive of the future. So using them to manage safety, using them as your guide doesn't work. If you've got an indicator that is not predictive, then you can't use it to plan your actions with. Um, and David, I don't know about you, but I think these are all fair criticisms and I quite like having them documented. They're... I mean, they're well known, but that doesn't mean that everyone's read them, everyone knows about them, everyone accepts them. And I think we can't too often say these things in different ways that might appeal to different audiences. Yeah, Drew, I think this is, um, you know, what we've just gone through now, I think was one of the reasons that I mentioned earlier about the selection of the journal, just making sure that it does, that, that these uh, these perspectives or realities on on these indicators make its way to as many stakeholders as possible. But I think also it doesn't take away from that other point that you raised at the start, which is organisations want something to provide them with an indication of whether things are safe or or not safe or getting better or getting worse. That's the way that companies are run. They're run with, a, with, with metrics and indicators. So the question becomes, if not these metrics that we've got, then what metrics should we have? And I suppose that's the stepping off point for, for this paper. Uh, like I said, to try to do two things to to try to do two things, which is to actually think about how to demonstrate some level of compliance and also to understand the safety of work. So we know these metrics aren't good or or helpful for us, but does that mean they're actually bad or 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 why why is using sort of bad metrics a bad thing to do? To be honest, I'd kind of thought that this was obvious. But I guess if you are someone who thinks, well, there's lost time indicators aren't great, but they're the only thing we've got, so we'll use them. It is actually worth spelling out the arguments for why having a bad indicator actively causes harm. And so the second half of section one goes through why are bad metrics bad? And they start off with the obvious, which is that bad metrics don't directly cause accidents. It's not like, oh no, you've used Triffa, therefore someone's going to get hurt. But they say that using those metrics do create conditions within your organisation that can be bad for safety. So it's a second order effect. One of the reasons is that focusing on metrics acts as a decoy. And they cite to lots of safety theory that in turn cites lots of accidents that show this. That if you're using bad metrics, then that can actively prevent you from recognising the problems that cause accidents. Because you're focusing on the wrong things, you're seeing improvement when things are actually going bad, your attention is being drawn to things going wrong in minor ways instead of to the big accidents that are looming. So an unhelpful metric can actually 
disguise an accident that's on its way. The second thing is that if you connect those bad metrics to incentives, things like rewards and bonuses, either explicitly or even just in the board always talking about those things and making them implicit in things like CEO appointments, retention and promotion decisions, then that creates a culture of secrecy. Um, I know Andrew Hopkins has published a lot of work about this, the idea that once you start using metrics to judge people and those metrics are not accurate, then you have huge pressure within the organization to manage the metrics effectively, which leads to hiding of accidents. And then the final problem is the regulator paradox, which we've talked about on the show before, that if you've got a metric that you are driving down towards zero, then the better your performance against that metric, the less information that metric provides to you. And so you become blind to what's actually going on. David, I noticed in the show notes, you've put in a reference to Renee Amalberti's paper, The Paradox of Almost Totally Safe Transport Systems, uh, which is a recommended read for anyone who sort of wants to know more about the regulator paradox. Yeah, Drew. Um, so I think we've probably put to bed that uh, the metrics, these these incident count metrics are, are bad, again, and having bad metrics is bad for safety. It's a bit of that irony that we wrote about in a safety clutter paper as well, Drew, which is that, well, just because they don't work, if you still want to use them, use them. No, no, just they don't work and using them can ironically actually be worse for safety than maybe not using anything at all. Um, so in terms of our review of this paper then, section one, I can't see anything objectionable and I can see lots of stuff that I agree with. If you're writing a paper where you wanted to suck me in, get me nodding along the way, then having a long list bash against injury rates and against bad use of bad metrics is going to have me always on board. How about you, David? Yeah, well, I must admit I um, skipped down because I got more interested <laughs> once I started getting into section two and what the, this idea of a capacity index was. So, um, so so you were really interested in that question of, yeah, 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 I accept what's wrong with Triffer, but what else are we going to do? Exactly right. So now we're in section two. Okay, so so basically section two provides this explanation and theoretical justification for a new measurement in safety, which is referred to as this capacity index. This has a very safety differently flavor. Like this is, it's coming from a new view safety theory flavor, but then it's also, it's also coming from this direction of measurement in order to demonstrate due diligence. So we've got two concepts going on here that I'll quickly talk about. So due diligence is this legal defense or, or a framework to, for a legal defense for demonstrating that an individual acted appropriately in relation to their legal obligation to provide a safe system of work. So these, we'll talk about the due diligence framework that's that's used, which has got six elements. And so one of the problems that the paper was trying to solve is how can we create measurements in our organization to know as responsible people that we're doing the things that we're expected to do under our legal obligations framework. So that's that's concept number one. The second concept is this idea of capacity, which sort of is lifted straight out of the new view literature. So HRO theory, resilience engineering, safety differently, safety two, human organizational performance. And all of these theories propose that there are capacities that organizations need to have or enable to for them to perform work successfully and, and safely. So the way, and so this is this idea of having capacities, and, and I think that many of our listeners will be familiar with this idea, capacity to create the safety of work or to manage work in a way where safety is an emergent property. But we're, we're starting to mix these two ideas around, Drew, and I don't know how you feel about whether these two ideas belong together or don't belong together, but I struggled to have these two ideas kind of like interchanging throughout the paper. David, I think the... Whenever I'm trying to make sense of this sort of thing, I go back to our safety of work model, 
um, which is that, that's one of the reasons why we invented the model in the first place was to have a framework that we could hang these sort of discussions around. Just a reminder for our listeners, the, uh, we talk about this a lot more detail. I think it's in episode 50, but we're talking about different purposes you have for safety. So one of the purposes is we do safety to demonstrate to people outside the organization that we're safe. And that's where due diligence comes in. Due diligence is externally facing or it's facing away from the point of the hazard towards showing outsiders that we're managing that hazard. It's a real and legitimate concern for organizations. I'm actually not very comfortable with the idea that measurement is an appropriate way of demonstrating safety to outsiders. I think that is perhaps a misuse of measurement in the first place. But I, I can accept that due diligence is something that is necessary and that people who do due diligence might be made comfortable by metric. So I'm just happy to just sort of accept that as a business reality. Then we've got these other forms of safety. We've got social safety, which is convincing ourselves that we care about safety. We've got administrative safety, which is the operation of a safety management system. We have physical safety, which is direct changes to work or the workplaces to improve safety. And then we have operational safety, which are the outcomes from operational work. And whenever we're trying to introduce new measures, they're always going to fit somewhere inside this framework. So lost time indicators fit fairly clearly. Your lost time indicators are measures of outcomes. So they are absolutely a direct measure of safety. You know, the problems with lost time indicators are not that they're failing to measure the right thing. It's just that they're a really, really bad measurement of that thing. The idea of capacity is resilience engineering's proposal for a better measure of that same thing. The idea is to have a measure that comes really close to measuring properties of operational work that are present in that operational work, but aren't the outcomes of that work. And so you find lots of papers written about proposing new measurement systems based on resilience that are based around measures of capacity. And the reason why I find this a bit confusing is that if you think about things in terms of the safety of work model, demonstrated safety and operational safety are right at far ends of the model. You can't measure both at once. Or if you want to measure operational safety for the purpose of demonstration, you've got to go through the other types of work first. And the risk is that you end up measuring those other types of work instead of measuring the operational safety. And I think that's a theme that we're going to come back to because the common mistake that pretty much everyone falls into, and any time I try to do this myself, I fall into the same trap. And David, I know you've called me out in meetings for this before. You start off thinking that you're going to create some new measure of operational safety and you end up just measuring the safety work. You end up measuring the administration instead of measuring the safety. Um, and I think that's where we're going to see ourselves heading in this paper is are we actually succeeding in measuring properties of work or are we just ending up back in that trap of measuring safety activities? And the paper does call that out a few times, like measuring the safety of work rather than safety work. But yeah, it, it is very hard to get out of that trap. And, and I don't think this paper's managed to get out of that trap either. Yeah, yeah David, I don't know if, about you, but when I was sort of reading the paper, it was like someone who is sort of like wandering through the woods saying, I'm not going to step in the bear trap. I'm not going to step in the bear trap. I'm not going to step in the bear trap. Click snap. They've stepped right in the bear trap that they're telling you that they're trying not to fall into. Yeah, a couple of ways. Um, so Drew, the paper mentioned six capacities and these are these are capacities which are sort of a, 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 um, statements of what organisations need to do to demonstrate the six sort of elements or criteria for demonstrating due diligence. So just want to run through what these six uh, capacities are that the that make up the capacity index, if you like. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy to read them off. Each one of these has got a keyword which doesn't seem to match the description. 
but I'll just give them to you as they are in the paper. So the first capacity they call no, which they say is the capacity for things to go well under variable conditions. So this is the thing we sort of often look for is work needs to adapt to local conditions. How successfully is it adapting? Either conditions sort of local to particular places or local to particular times. Uh, the second one they call understand, which is the capacity to anticipate through risk competence and risk appreciation. The third one is called resource, which is the capacity to make resources available and to identify goal conflicts. Then we have monitor, which is the capacity to monitor, to identify issues and to communicate about those issues. And then comply the capacity to assure the effectiveness of the monitoring, and then verify the capacity to learn from failure and success. Yeah, so Drew, this is where the first misintegration of these two ideas, because you're right, they don't quite line up because the, the key words relate to the six due diligence principles where no is about maintaining knowledge, uh, appropriate levels of knowledge of health and safety. And that's been sort of used as a, a category, if you like, to throw this capacity in there about for things to go well. And they don't really quite line up that well, because I think what we're trying to do is look at the requirements of individuals, so to maintain knowledge of health and safety, and then try to think about what that might mean as an organizational capacity. And they actually just don't line up as well as they might need to. Okay, so, so, so now that you've sort of explained that, I can see where it's coming from and I can see the mismatch. Because if the requirement for due diligence is to know what's going on, that is a totally separate thing from the capacity for things to go well under variable conditions. And in fact, there's a good argument that a lot of the capacity for things to go well comes from the freedom of not having someone looking over your shoulder. In fact, that's one of the big tensions in safety differently is how do you just let teams vary locally and safely because any form of oversight tends to standardise things. So yeah, already we've almost got a direct con co contradiction in these objectives here. Yeah, and these capacities, there's there's a couple of things intertwined together, like the capacity to monitor and identify issues and communicate is kind of like at least three broad areas of capacity and nothing specific in there. But that's so. So I think that the lesson when you're trying to do some, I mean, this is I, I see this as very much a a theory paper, Drew. I don't know if that's exactly what it would be called. This is proposing a, a new idea in safety. And theory building is something that needs to be thought through very carefully. And I think they've, they've, where, where's your starting point? What, what, what existing theory are you stepping off from? What are you responding to? We talk about that a lot of time in the podcast. What's, what's, what is the theory being provided in response to? And I just, I think the starting point with the due diligence elements is just not the right starting point to understand capacities to create the safety of work. Yeah, I don't want to read too much into the intentions of the authors, because I think the fairest thing to do is to take a paper directly on its own merits. But I think this is a common problem with metrics, is that very often the reason why people propose metrics is they're trying to provide a solution to a problem. They're trying to provide something that they can give to industry, possibly sell to industry, or at least sell as an idea that other people can pick up and use. And that's often creating a sort of productized solution is inconsistent with good theory building. Um, because you to create products, to create packages that people can take, you've got to make all of these compromises. But the compromises then end up shoehorning things together that don't really go together. So you have bad theory. Often good theory is very unhelpful. Um, often good theory just says, here's a problem. We've got no solution to it, but we've described the problem fairly and well. Yeah, absolutely. Drew, so we've got to the end of section two where these capacities are introduced. And, and there's actually quite a quite a um, considerable section on, on each of these capacities. And it's actually not a bad 
read because it, it it cherry picks the literature, but it does actually just tie in a lot of the different aspects of the safety science literature and and sort of puts it into these six different bucket areas. You know, some of the capacities that we've mentioned, they're not too far from like, for example, the resilience potentials, the, you know, Eric Holnagel's capacities to monitor, anticipate, respond and learn. So you can read through it's very accessible language. It's 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 got well referenced, but I'm I just don't think that the framework here in section two is actually the right place to start to actually start creating performance measures. And we're going to see that, I think, um, very clearly in section three. No, I agree with that. I don't think cherry picking is an entirely fair criticism. It's not intended to be a comprehensive review. And the stuff that they pull out is certainly representative of, it gives you a good sense of a body of literature. Um, it doesn't give you a like misleading impression of that literature, I don't think. There are certainly, you could question why certain things have or haven't been included. But I think my my, my comment there about the, the cherry picking, Drew, is in relation to the fact that the starting point for identifying the capacities to create safety were to have six due diligence principles and then pick the safety science literature and discussion that could line up with those, those capacities. The starting point with this section was not to say, okay, what does the literature say uh, are the capacities that are needed to create safety work? And then how does that literature line up again? Let's, and then let's see how this literature lines up against the six Area. So there was a lot of stuff. So there's nothing in there. You know, there's not a lot in. There's not enough in there about some of the things that we know are capacities to create safety. Thank you for explaining that. No, that 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 much I definitely agree with. It's trying to shoehorn things that fit these due diligence principles, um, and I agree that there are some things that don't get included because of that. So let's let's move on to section three, which is the. If this is like leading up to the proposal of a suite of metrics, then section three is that proposal. Section three, particularly there is a table in this section which highlights what the metrics package looks like. And so we've gone from these sort of vague descriptions of capacities down into some really quite specific suggestions. So just to describe what this table looks like, it's got a list of capacities, which are the ones we've already talked about. Against each of those capacities, it lists off the due diligence requirements, which I think are sort of taken directly from that statement of what a board's required to do for due diligence. Then they have two columns, initial measures and developing measures. So the reason for these two columns is that they refer multiple times to this suite as a work in progress. And so the initial measures are things that we can measure now, and the developing measures are where they would like the capacity index to go perhaps with further work and further definition of measures. Just to frame this, I think the paper, it may, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are said in this paper prior to this section. And, and one is that it is easier to measure safety work than it is to measure the safety of work. So that's um, one, of, one of our quotes, Drew, and, and that was in there. And it absolutely is. You can, you can count and you can, you can see the safety work. So it, it is very much easier. Um, but then also quoting some of Deming's work from the 1980s to say that outcome measures are not variables that organisations should set out to control. So, you know, the measure of the activity itself as opposed to maybe the input measures. So the problem is is, is, is the paper sets out this, this landscape well as what, what, what needs to happen. But section three goes on to basically do all those things that the paper says not to do, um, which is the bear trap that you, that you mentioned earlier, Drew. So, Drew, your opinion of this table. So we've got, we've got this table there that actually, and I suppose some credit to the authors here, they've actually put metrics on the table and said, measure this. So I, I guess going through the columns in order, we've already talked about the capacities. And well, I think you can always argue that there are different capacities that you could measure as well. 
I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the capacities that they've suggested. I agree that all of those capacities are things that do work for safety and that having measures that relate to those things would be helpful and certainly would be better than measuring outcomes. The trouble is that once we start thinking of those capacities in terms of due diligence, I think there's a fundamental theoretical conflict because due diligence is a lot about measuring the work of safety rather than the safety of work. I think that's like fundamental in the definition of what boards are supposed to do is that they're supposed to focus on measuring administration and representing the organization to outside stakeholders. They're not actually fo supposed to focus directly on operational work that much. And all, if all of these capacities are properties of operational work, then we have this tension. And so when we move into the next column, which is about the initial measures that they're proposing, they're all about just measuring volumes of certain types of activities. Perhaps we should give some examples there, David. Do you have the table in front of you? Yeah, no, I've got a couple of examples, Drew. So for example, this idea of building the capabilities in people so that things go well, even under variable conditions. And so the metric for that is the number of worker insights per million hours worked. The, another one would be the capacity to anticipate through risk competence and risk appreciation at all levels of the organization. And so this measuring the capacity to anticipate future risks is about the number of learning reviews per million hours worked, for example. So, so you're seeing all of the capacity is boiled down to a particular activity, uh, let's say a safety work activity or an operational work activity, not the work itself, per million hours worked um, to get a rate. Yeah, and my concern is that the moment you start doing measures on these sorts of activities, then all you do is drive up the activities and drive down the quality. You, you tell a supervisor that you must produce 100 worker insights and they'll produce 100 worker insights. And every one of those worker insights will be absolutely less than insightful. You, you tell people that they need to conduct a certain number of learning reviews. That says nothing about whether anything is learnt in those learning reviews. Um, it's just driving and measuring an activity and driving an activity without measuring the actual capacity that that activity is supposed to create. And so I don't think that what we're doing here is actually measuring capacity at all. We're measuring things that are neither creators of that capacity nor symptoms of that capacity existing. They're merely activities that exist vaguely in the same topic area as the capacity. And I think that's a real problem. I don't think it's enough for the authors to say, well, this is just a work in progress, we're going to get better. Because every one of the actual proposals is a measure of volume of activity, and then all of the developing measures are just placeholder names for metrics that don't exist. So they've got some wonderful names for metrics that they don't define. Instead of just counting the number of learning reviews, they're going to have a resilience control score. <laughs> a control implementation assessment. It, these are not metrics that exist. It's like, well, we propose a bad way and we're promising to give you a better way. Just wait till the next paper is published. Yeah, yeah, Drew, I think I, I, I probably need to be a little bit directly critical of, of this table and, and this work here because I, I think the table is mostly unhelpful and particularly when very credible authors uh, put something into a peer-reviewed publication that can be done in an organization. I think part of the role that I take seriously on a safety of work podcast is to say, please don't do this because I don't think this, this, this table moves us forward. We'll talk a bit about that a little bit more before we finish the podcast, but it also shows sort of a bit of a lack of understanding about what is done in industry at the moment, because a lot of those developing metrics like 
a developing metric around a significant event rate or severity rate, well, organizations have been using injury severity rates and hypo or, or you know, significant incident rates for two decades. And some of the other things are just like developing metrics like safety plan implementation as a developing metric. Like these are, these are not helpful uh, things to put in concrete inside a table. It feels to me like it was a draft table that just was an initial discussion that just never, ever got finished. But I think it goes beyond being unfinished. And I just want to point out some of the, I don't think this is deliberate, but it is certainly a little bit disingenuous. So under the idea of resourcing, they mention a thing called a resili score, which they say is a measure of the resilient state. Now, I don't know about you, David, I don't know what a resili score is. It's not defined in this paper. It's not spelled out. I don't think this exists in the peer-reviewed literature. But what's going to happen is we now have a published paper that has been peer-reviewed that says Resili score is a good way of measuring things, even though the peer reviewers have never peer reviewed Resili score because it's just a placeholder name. Someone is now going to publish a technique called Resili score, and that's not going to be peer reviewed. That's going to be put out by a company that is presumably selling it to organizations off the back of the fact that it's been documented in a peer reviewed paper. And I think that is really quite blurring the grounds between sort of industry products and academic products when we have the sort of industry products mentioned in an academic article but not defined in that article so they don't get peer reviewed but the overall article and the table and the package claims peer review yeah and and there's another big claim which is why i get particularly nervous because there's a claim even even the the though the work in progress statement is made there is also another claim that the measures in the capacity index, so those measures that we're talking about, are not only consistent with existing and emerging research in safety and resilience engineering, but direct quote, they also exhaustively cover the due diligence requirements under work safety legislation in many Western countries. And this is untrue and unsubstantiated. If you're following these metrics in this table, in this index, you are not covering your due diligence requirements or your, le- or your legal requirements. And I'm definitely not as credible as Michael Toomer to talk about OHS law, but that claim is not true. Um, I'm just going to have to accept your word for that one, David, because I know even less about application of OHS law than you do. Yeah, I, I think, Drew, if you're measuring six items, if you're measuring the number of work insights you're doing, the number of learning reviews you're doing, uh, the severity of your incidents and the other four or five points in that table, that is not comprehensively and exhaustively covering your due diligence obligations or your legal compliance obligations. What I can certainly say is that it's not consistent with emerging research in safety and resilience engineering. So I'll let you say the one that it doesn't cover the due diligence and I'll say that it doesn't cover the safety science either. So basically what we're doing is we're measuring activities and all of those things are about measuring activities. Now, unless you already know for sure that those activities provide the capacity that you're looking for, then measuring the activities doesn't tell you anything about the capacity. But how do we know that the activity provides the capacity? We can only know that if we have some better measure of capacity, which we currently don't have. I mean, I'd love to have it. That would be the holy grail, I think, of safety measurement is a set of good measures of capacity. But without them, falling back on just measuring the activities creates this sort of circular argument. And they even in this paper, they, they do talk about things like you know number of audits. And I think that your number of audits, we know that audits are not effective at creating safety capacity. I think there is 
both solid existing and certainly emerging evidence that audits don't find the safety issues that we need them to find. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe from a compliance point of view, audits still have enough of a reputation, enough credence that you can claim that you're doing your due diligence because you've done the audit. But from a safety science point of view, you absolutely cannot say that. You cannot say we are safe because we have audited. Um, and if you believe that, then let me throw you an entire shelf of accident reports, every one of which talks about the audits that happened before the accident and how the issues that caused the accident were not found by the audits. Some of them even say that the audits gave a direct sense of um, false security. Yeah, Drew, I just want to sort of follow one example through just to pick up on what you said there, because I think it's, it's really important. So we've got a capacity in organization that we want to understand. So let's choose, for example, that building the capability in people so that things go well. So that's capacity number one. So how do we measure the capability that people have to make sure that things go well? That's what we're trying to understand. So first of all, we need to think, I think, from your point, Drew, is like, what's, how do we define that? And how do we understand that? And how do we measure that? When the paper goes on to describe the metric, it says the number of worker insights per million hours worked. Now, I can't in my head know the link between someone doing a work insight, so like a task observation or, a, or, a, or something like that, and building capability in people to make sure things go well. Like maybe if the person's doing electrical work, maybe knowing that they're an electrician tells me more about their capability to make things go well in that electrical work job than a worker insight. So we've got these measures that don't tell us about the capacity. And even if we could figure out the mechanism that we talk about, so even if we said, oh, okay, the worker insight understands work as done. And then that means that uh, change gets made to the physical work environment. That means then people get trained in this change. And that means that they've got a new capability. If we drew that link, then there'd be plenty of other things for us to measure without having to kind of measure the activity that's that's suggested. Yeah, I, I think I can see the sort of inherent logic. So you might assume that companies that care about building capacity in people so that things go well might also be the sort of companies that are trying to do things like hold learning teams. You might even presume that the learning team actually creates increased capacity and things to go well. So as a board, you want to know that your company is doing things like learning teams, that your company is trying to understand what makes work go well. I, I think that much is reasonable. But I think no one who does learning teams would tell you, oh, we know it's been a good learning team if we have the right number of worker insights. That, you know, we've got this performer that every learning team has to come up with 10 worker insights, and we know it's been a success if we've got all 10. It, it's a terrible measure of the success of your learning teams. And much as I hate to sort of throw this into the world of listeners who probably believe a lot in safety differently, there is currently no good evidence that learning teams build capacity in people that things go well. This hasn't been scientifically studied. It's sort of taken as an article of faith. And to take this article of faith and suddenly turn it into a metric, I think is going to destroy any possibility of learning teams helping work go well. And I, and I think the institutional theory, and definitely my own ethnographic research, Drew, showed this. And, and, and this reminds me of the HRO literature in the 80s, which was the HRO theory was never designed to be a how-to model. It was designed to be a descriptive model of some things that were seen in organizations that seemed to be highly reliable. Once it turns into a top-down formula, we know in relation to the corruption of role and task in, in hierarchical institutions, that it becomes a compliance activity. So the learning, the learning teams it become nothing about learning and just about doing one a month. We know that with so much of our safety work activity that this paper just walks 
straight into the wall of that of the, of those knowns about the way that organizations function. So David, I know we've joked before about safety differently audits and the way every new thing about safety gets captured into the old patterns. Are, are we seeing here two leaders of safety differently steering us straight into the path of turning it back into those same compliance focused activity-driven safety frameworks that Safety Differently sort of started off by complaining about? I think this paper tries to do too many things. So it's trying to do something that extends the safety and operationalizes some of the Safety Differently ideas. It's trying to do that in a way that someone can practically do something with it right now. It's trying to do something that not only helps improve operational safety, but also satisfies the need for demonstrated safety and uh, the discharging of director's due diligence obligations. It's trying to do solve all these really big issues in, in, in safety. And I think as a starting point, that's not, a, that's not a, the job of an individual paper. So, so let me throw this at you as a direct question. This is probably less to do, to do directly with the paper. We see this requirement for due diligence that is built into the way institutions currently work. It's built into the way we think about how companies run. It's built into a whole series of court cases that have established the requirements. It's built sometimes into black letter law. We've got this idea of safety differently, which comes from a very almost anarchist position about safety, which tries to focus purely on the operational end and doesn't start with the legal requirements. Is it the case that once you try to bridge the gap between those two ways of looking at the world, the due diligence way of looking at the world, the safety differently way of looking at the world, that it's inevitable that you're just going to see this conflict and this sort of trying to shoehorn things together that don't really fit. I think, I, Drew, it's probably my turn to, I suppose, think through this in the safety work, safety of work model because it's an and need. So, but it's something that shouldn't be conflated together. So this need to demonstrate due diligence and the need to create operational safety they're both needs of organizations, but this paper conflates the two. And I think that's the problem. So, so, so it's possible that this sort of project of creating metrics for both could work better if instead of trying to line the two up, we simply said every organization has to have two sets of metrics. Um, one set of metrics about capacity and one set of metrics about due diligence. So if you go back to due diligence and some of the work that, that I've done with boards, so you know, individual directors knowing and maintaining a knowledge of safety. How many hours a year do you spend in learning about safety how many safety of work podcast episodes have you listened to how many industry briefings have you been to how many hours have you spent per year per director knowing and understanding the risk that your organization faces of the control frameworks in place you know how how many sites have you visited how many risk outputs of major hazard risk workshops have you have you reviewed as a board what risks have you directly verified yourself that the controls are in place and working in your organization so you can have a set of activity metrics for directors because discharging their due diligence is about stuff that they do. So, and then deal with operational safety in a whole different way that actually relates to the context of the way that work happens in your organization. That'd be, so yeah, maybe, maybe I don't see a single set serving multiple purposes being kind of useful for any. Well, what I love about what you just said, David, is that you have actually sort of reconciled the two you've sort of shown how that you could apply the safety differently principles and the idea of capacity to a board, but you'd be talking about getting the board to think about themselves as workers and thinking about their capacity to meet their due diligence. 
but then you would separately measure the capacity of the organization to meet its safety. Hadn't thought about it as elegantly as that, but yes, because it's what what are you trying to create where in your organization? You're trying to create due diligence in part of your organization, like the board or the senior executive, and you're trying to create safety in the front line. Yeah. So so I think I think Drew, that's that's it, the paper's trying trying to do too much. And and what happens unfortunately then is it doesn't really do any of it that well. So David, I don't know if you'd like to sort of close off this discussion on that sort of charitable note. Because I do know that you've got a couple of sort of like perhaps slightly more harshly worded conclusions. I don't know if you want to throw any of them in. Oh, look, it, I just, it's a big responsibility. So so publishing work is a big responsibility. And I know that Michael and Sydney don't take that for granted at all. And and that, but 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 I worry the critical review may not happen and, and people will, will, will take some of this as, you know, the next management fad or fashion that we've talked about on one of the episodes of the podcast as well and think, okay, this is great. This is what, it, what I have to do. And I don't think it's going to help help people for that so i think i think all i'd say is let's move on to practical takeaways drew and because i think there is some takeaways in here and and maybe if i just run through practical takeaways and then we can leave some requests of our listeners absolutely let's do that all right so practical takeaway number one yes move on from injury rates and counts as your measures of safety performance so yes yes do do that also we need to move on, in my opinion, Drew, from what we've so-called leading indicators, which really just count the frequency of the performance of safety work activity, which is really what this paper does as well. Whether it's audits or investigations or inductions or the things that we spoke about in episode 35, or the number of learning reviews or the number of compliance audits or the number of worker insights, which are discussed in this paper, we've spent 70, nearly 74 episodes now talking about this really tenuous and difficult and complex link between safety work and the safety of work that suggests that those uh, those safety work indicators are really not going to be that helpful or useful for us about the safety of the work. Um, I think, Drew, the third one then, so, okay, so if, if we're going to go beyond that, then yes, do identify the capacities that your organisation needs to have to make work go well. So that what this paper set out to do in terms of these capacities, do that. Don't come from a due diligence point of view, but come from a from a work perspective. And then I think what you were saying, Drew, is then when you've got those capacities, the things that are important in creating sort of safety as an outcome of your work in your organization, then identify ways to directly understand and, if desired, measure that capacity. And if the measurement is qualitative and it's not a frequency rate or it's not a count, then so be it. But that's that's the sequence I'd say, move on from TRIFA, move on from safety work-related leading indicators, do take an attempt to identify your capacities do think about how you're going to understand the extent to which that capacity exists in your organization and um, and do something with that information. I don't want to pretend that steps four and five there are easy. I think part of this project of improving measurement is recognizing that any measures we think of are going to be flawed and we're going to keep falling into the same traps. So you know, very, very big brains have followed that path of moving on from TRIFA, identifying capacities, tried to understand and measure that capacity, oh, damn, realize that actually what we're doing is measuring safety activity again. Back to the drawing board. And so do, when you come up with measures, ask yourself, are we actually measuring capacity or are we just measuring volumes of activity? And if we fall into the trap, don't beat yourself up about it. We all do it. Try again. Um, and eventually one of us is going to crack this problem and actually find some good measures of capacity. Drew, look, you're right. You can do it. You can pick any any of the theories. You say, okay, high reliability organization theory, which is also topical in your part of the world at the moment. 
Drew, particularly in the mining sector, and you say, right, I want to measure my capacity around deference to expertise. You know, how how am I going to know how 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 that happens? Or say sensitivity to operations. So I've tried to do this before to say, well, I want my senior leaders to be sensitive to operations. So I'm going to count the number of days that they spend in the field every month and set them a target around that. So there you go, falling straight into that trap of just the volume of the activity itself rather than what's what it's actually creating in your organization. So it is very hard to break out of this trap that we've sort of that I've sort of criticized the authors here for, but we need we, we need to put some horsepower behind this. And it's it's frustrating that it's so hard to break out. Because if we just pick that example of deference to expertise, it is important and it's a real thing. People in your organization probably know whether experts are deferred to. If you could ask everyone and get non- trust yourself to get an honest answer, you could probably tell people, you know, who gets listened to? Is it senior management or is it the people who are, have the expertise? And if you would get an honest answer, that's a real question that could be answered, which could be measured. It's just that measuring stuff well and getting honest answers is so hard. Yeah, it is. And the indicator, one of the things about performance metrics, just to throw it out there, is the indicator, any indicator, um, any measure, representative measure, will only ever tell you what questions to ask. It's never going to give you the answers. So you might not even need to measure at all if you've got a set of really good questions in your organization, because you can go and actually get all that descriptive insight without necessarily needing to be tabulating an indicator as well. But Drew, invitations for the listeners. I, I kind of thought Let's let's try and have some of this discussion. Let's try and get a bit of horsepower behind this. Um, what are organisations doing to try to measure the capacities uh, that they believe they need to have to impact the safety of work? Like, where have you got to um, with this whole metrics and measurements thing? I'm going to assume that pretty much everyone in the safety community, it's probably too big a claim. Lots of people are probably on board with this need to move on from incident rates. I know there's lots of people in organisations who are doing work to, to, to change the way that they have safety performance conversations and think about that in your organization. I'd love to hear your stories. Um, if, you've, if you've had a go at the understanding your capacities and measuring them, please tell us what you're doing. So Drew, the question that um, we asked, we did ask a question at the start, is a capacity index a good replacement for incident count safety metrics? I think measuring capacity is the right direction to go. I think this paper is a self-admitted work in progress and needs to be treated as a work in progress rather than an answer at this point. So if you're interested in seeing work as it's progressing, then have a look at that, this as work in progress, but it's not ready to be a replacement. Thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Please join in this discussion with us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 